Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Rich Pledger. I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright Constable and Skeen in Richmond, Virginia. I'm joined by the venerable Wayne Lambert, the regional manager of Cashin, Spinelli, and Ferretti's Northeast office. Wayne has more than 30 years of experience in the surety industry as a consultant, in-house surety claims profession, and lawyer in private practice. As usual, we'd like to start our episodes with a big thank you to all of our listeners and supporters of Surety Today. Remember, you can listen to any one or all of the prior 88 episodes of Surety Today anytime, anywhere, from any one of our multiple platforms, which include the Surety Today page on our website, wcslaw.com, as a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbeam. Just search for Surety Today, and on our microsite, quote, suretytoday.net, unquote. We have had just a, just a little shy of 11,600 downloads of our podcast. As always, I have muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise. We will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today, I would like to discuss a few issues which arose in connection with the handling of a claim in a construction surety case I recently tried for eight days before a jury of all uh, finders of fact, in federal court, and we won. The focus will be on the differences between the A12 performance bond, 2010 version, and the AGC document 606 performance bond, the 1988 version, as well as a few subcontract provisions in the bonded subcontract. It should be noted that the AGC 606 bond has been replaced with the consensus docs 706 subcontract performance bond, but it still pops up from time to time. The consensus docs 706 bond provides a self-help provision which gives a general contractor a means to mitigate potential damages during a surety's investigation. I'd like to provide a brief overview of the case I recently tried. The obligee as general contractor entered into a subcontract with a subcontractor in the amount of $2,800,000 for the civil scope of work on a 200-acre solar plant. It accepted an AGC 606 bond in the amount of $2 million. The subcontractor was to begin work in November of 2020, but other than initial mobilization, was prevented from beginning its work by virtue of the general contractor's failure to obtain the land disturbance permits. When the permits were ultimately obtained four months later, the subcontractor was permitted to start its work in April of 2021. The general contractor, which was already behind schedule, immediately began complaining that the subcontractor was in default in a number of particulars. The surety was unaware of any issue until it received a courtesy copy of a letter dated June 28, 2021, a letter which did not call upon the surety to do anything. At the obligee's request, the surety had preliminary discussions with the obligee in late July. The subcontractor took significant issue with the obligee's position. Nevertheless, the obligee began vetting replacement subcontractors in late July and hired them on a T&M basis 
ostensibly as, quote, supplemental, unquote, contractors. After a vehemently contested safety incident on August 3, the obligee suspended the subcontractor's right to continue its work and, on August 5, declared the subcontractor in default, but it did not terminate the subcontract. And in doing so, it cited various, quote, subcontractor defaults, unquote, as defined by the subcontract dating back to April 2021. These alleged defaults included the subcontractor's repeated failure to perform the work, disregard of required safety procedures, procurement of incorrect materials, performance of poor quality work, failure to pay its subcontractors and material men, and inadequate labor forces. On August 6, a day later, the obligee gave notice to the surety that the subcontractor was in default and called upon it for the first time to promptly cure the defaults, summarizing the various defaults dating back to April 2021. Keep in mind that some of the alleged defaults were at least four months old. On August 11, a mere five days after the initial claim, the obligee informed the surety during a conference call that it intended to select a completion subcontractor by August 20, and after an exchange of emails and letters, the surety, through its counsel, advised it was conducting its investigation and requested the standard list of documents for review. In response, the obligee advised by letter dated August 27 that, quote, while we understand the surety's request to review documentation, the project cannot sim- can, simply cannot afford to wait for the results of an extensive surety investigation, unquote, and that it was planning to award completion subcontracts by the end of the following week. The surety protested, reserving its right to continue the investigation. It was evident that the obligee simply wanted to sh- the surety to rubber stamp its plan to hire the replacement subcontractor based on bids it had already received. The surety did not do so given the exorbitant pricing proposals and the fact that it was in the middle of the investigation. Ultimately, the obligee completed the work with completion subcontractors, which it claimed it hired as supplemental contractors, initially on a P&M basis, spending in excess of $6 million to complete a $2.8 million subcontract, which had only $1.5 million left to do under the principal subcontract. The obligee then sued the subcontractor and its surety for $6 million, even though the penal sum of the bond was expressly limited to $2 million. And yes, a partial motion to dismiss was filed by the surety, to which the obligee acquiesced. In response, the subcontractor filed a counterclaim for $1.8 million, putting a number of factors, including the general contractor's failure to pay a substantial progress payment and pay for extra work it was instructed to perform. The ultimate question for you to ponder is what you would have done on the circumstance. There are some differences between the AIA A320 and the AGC Document 606 performance bond. While at first blush, the AIA A312 and the AGC 606 to be substantially similar, there are some subtle differences which may impact what the surety does. Although there is plenty of case law addressing claims under the A312 bond, there is little, if any, case law addressing them under the AGC 606 bond. So, too, with respect to the consensus docs 706 bond. In fact, I am unaware of any published decisions under the 706 bond form. Now, I will uh, turn the, uh, the discussion over to Wayne Lambert, who will discuss some of the finer points under the A312, the AGC 606, and even the A311. Wayne? 
Is everybody still awake? And can you hear me, Rich? I can hear you. I hope I didn't put everybody to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I know, because we're we're all surety geeks, so we we really love this kind of stuff. And <clears throat> in Rich's case, it's another. Excuse me a second. In Rich's case, it's another example of the maxim of read the bond, RTFC. What Rich had was the AGC 606 bond, which I don't, I, I, I believe I've seen it before in my career, but it does not come up often. So you really got to look, obviously, at the terms of that bond and what they mean. So in this particular bond, when I look at it, it's very similar to three different types of bonds in some respects. There is an obligation for the principal to perform the subcontract and then the bond will become null and void, otherwise it remains in full force and effect. That's language similar to a defeasance or a faithful performance type of bond where you gotta have to look to the underlying contract terms to determine what the obligations are for the parties if they're getting into a termination or a, a first a default or a termination for a default situation. But in this particular bond, it continued to read very similar to the, an AIA 311 bond. And then there are aspects of an AIA 312 bond involved here. So the aspects that are similar to an AIA 311 bond are the age-old requirements, the predicates that a principal shall be in default, be declared to be in default by an obligee under the subcontract, the obligee having performed its obligations under the subcontract. Those are three predicates before the surety's obligations under the bond arise. And once the surety's obligations under the bond arise, then they have to remedy the default and shall prompt or shall promptly complete the subcontract using uh, a contractor. They can obtain, uh, they can use the subcontractor, or at least there's an argument as to whether or not they could use a subcontractor. It doesn't spell it out specifically in the 606 bond. They can obtain a new contractor and tender that contractor to the obligee making available funds along the way as work progresses. They can indemnify the obligee, just pay the obligee an amount, um, liable, and pay the obligee the amount as soon as practical as to what they determine is, is owed. I call it an indemnity, but it's not really an indemnity. It's just the surety determining what amount is owed and paying it. The question remains whether or not that would be accepted by the obligee. Uh, or whether they would keep the right, their rights under the bond open for further payments, or deny liability, which is the part of the A312 bond that comes into this bond. So the AIA312 bond has other types of preconditions that we're all quite familiar with about the older, the 2010 bond version that required a meeting or conference within five or so days of notification of the intent to declare a default, the obligation of the obligee to commit the contract balance to the surety. They also have to terminate under the AIA 312 bond, which you don't, the, the obligation to terminate does not appear in the AGC 606 
bond form nor in the AIA 311 bond form. But once the conditions precedent by the obligee have been satisfied, then the surety has the opportunity to act under the terms of the bond. They shall promptly investigate. They can arrange for the contractor with the consent of the owner to complete. They can perform and complete the construction through an agent or an independent contractor. They can tender somebody to the obligee after an investigation. They can waive their right to perform and either do one of two things, make payments to the owner or deny liability and set forth the reasons why they're denying. So all of this gets back to the point of what is your responsibility as a surety under the bond and when does your obligations trigger? When are they triggered? And in Rich's case, as I recall, there was a question as to whether or not the surety had an obligation to undertake an investigation until it got its letter in August of 2021, rather than a copy of a letter to the principal back in June of 2021. And under the LA contracting case line, or and their line of cases that follow LA contracting, a notification to the surety must be clear, direct, and unequivocal in declaring a default. And in the LA contracting case, even though it was a 311 type bond, termination was required by the court because they required the obligee to notify the surety that they were cons they considered the contract to have been terminated, even though there was no termination requirement in the terms of the bond itself. And in this case, the the clear, direct, and unequivocal notification to the surety did not occur until a communication, a letter in August of 2021. And then when the surety started to undertake its investigation, the obligee took the position, we don't have time for you. You know, we're, we're already starting to line up a completion guy. And we want you to, in essence, rubber stamp or consent to our use of this contractor. Um, and that really does bring up another aspect of this. After the surety has has um, satisfied itself that the conditions under the bond have been satisfied, that the principal is in default, that it has been declared to be in default, that the obligee has performed or in some other bond form substantially performed its requirements under the subcontract and the surety must act. But in order for the surety to act, it undertakes an investigation. And I think we've all seen the situation where the obligee is a general contractor and the performance bond is a subcontractor performance bond. And the general contractors have a very different opinion as to what the promptness is on the surety's investigation. The surety has an understanding that they need to conduct a thorough and independent investigation and the general contractor bond obligee usually has the opinion that that investigation is all well and good as long as it doesn't take more than two or three days. So who gets to determine the definition of reasonable promptness? And that's open to interpretation. And I'll, I'll kick it back to, to Rich at this point. All right. Thank you, Wayne. Uh, by the way, I wanted to point out that A312 versus the AGC 606 I make specific reference to those two bonds because 
the subcontract required either an AIA A312 bond or a similar bond form. And they accepted the AGC 606. I'm not sure why anybody would want to issue the AGC 606, but they did, and it was accepted. Now, both forms, that, that is the A312 and the uh, uh, AGC 606, use the word promptly or promptness. Uh, the A312 requires reasonable promptness under the circumstances, and uh, the AGC 6 bond provides that the surety, quote, promptly remedy the default or promptly select from one of the four enumerated uh, options. It does not define promptness. It does not use the term reasonable promptness. It just says prompt. The issue of prompt action demanded by the obligee under the 606 bond became a fundamental issue in our case. The obligee demanded a conference call the next business day after the August 6, 2021 notice to the surety of the default and claim under the bond it wanted to know exactly what the surety was going to do during that call. What is considered prompt or reasonable promptness is not defined by the bond, so we rely on case law for interpretation. The court in Seaboard Surety versus Town of Greenfield, a district court decision out of Massachusetts from 2003, ruled that a surety is allowed a commercially reasonable time to investigate the circumstances surrounding its principal's default before selecting from the various performance options available to it. We took the position that the surety could not have been expected to make a decision by August 20, having received the demand just short of two weeks before on a 200-acre project. And actually, the court granted a jury instruction uh, relying on that um, uh, reasonable time to investigate, commercially reasonable time to investigate under the circumstances. In addition, there are some pertinent bond subcontract provisions which we um, found interesting. Uh, from the surety's perspective, two of them were of significance in our analysis. One was the definition of subcontractor defaults. The subcontract provided that the subcontractor shall be in default of its obligations upon the occurrence of any one or more of the following circumstances, each a subcontractor default, capital S, capital D, including but not limited to subcontractor breaches any material terms or conditions of the contract documents, fails to provide a change order proposal, fails to timely provide a recovery plan, fails to achieve substantial completion within 60 days after the guaranteed substantial completion date, and fails to pay its debts as they become due. As noted above, many of these alleged defaults, which the obligee called subcontractor defaults, in numerous emails and letters to the subcontractor dated back to April of 2021, but never told the surety until three or four months later. A key question presented to the jury during my opening statement was, why did the general contractor wait for four months? What's good for the goose is good for the gander if you want promptness. Under prevailing case law, which the surety has option, where the surety has options from which it may choose in a performance bond, the law states that the obligee must give timely notice to the surety of the principal's default such that the surety has a meaningful opportunity to choose from its options before the obligee elects to remedy the default on its own terms. I can uh, provide citations if you would like. The judge also granted uh, jury instruction along those lines. We took the position that the obligee did not give the surety a meaningful opportunity to choose from its options. The subcontract also outlined the 
quote, contractor remedies, unquote, which provided that upon occurrence of a subcontractor default, contractors shall have any and all of the following rights and remedies, including but not limited to, the right to A, suspend subcontractor's performance, B, supplement subcontractor's workforce, or hire a separate subcontractor to take over and perform any portion or all of the work as the contractor deems necessary to cure, this, to cure the subcontractor default. C, terminate subcontractor's performance. D, withhold any payments due and owing to a subcontractor as necessary to assure payment for completion of the work by others. As noted above, the obligee took upon itself to hire replacement subcontracts on what it described as, quote, supplemental contractors. A surety is entitled to reasonable notice and an opportunity to act before the obligee takes matters into its own hands and arranges for completion of the project on its own. That's the International Fidelity Insurance Company case versus America Carib Moriarty JV, a Southern District of Florida decision from 2016. A surety is prejudiced and will be discharged from its obligations under its performance bond if it is deprived of its opportunity to participate in the selection of a completion contractor to finish the work begun by the, con by the principal. The actions of the obligee in the American Carib case are strikingly similar to those taken by the obligee in our case. The obligee, America Reeb, notified the principal that it was in default by a letter dated July 15, 2015. About two months later, on September 21, America Reeb declared the principal in default, terminated the subcontract, and made a demand on the subcontract performance bond. On the following day, September 22, America Reeb sent the surety letter stating that it intended to award the remaining scope of work under the subcontractor to another entity, Dillon Pools. The day after that, Dillon Pools began its work on the job site. On October 1, a formal replacement subcontract was executed between America Reeb and Dillon Pools. The district court found that while America Reeb may have been technically provided notice to the surety, it was really, quote, notice in name only. Crucial to this determination, and I paraphrase, was the fact that America Reeb did not afford the surety actual notice and an opportunity to act before taking matters into its own hands and arranging for completion of the subcontract. In fact, America Reeb anticipated employing Dillon Pools to complete the subcontract as early as September 16, when it obtained a bid from Dillon Pools. Almost coextensive with its declaration of default, which triggered the surety's options under the performance bond, America Reeb engaged Dillon Pools and allowed it to begin work at the site. This rendered any opportunity America Reeb claimed to have provided to the surety to act under the performance bond fictional, and the surety's right to reasonable notice before America Reeb undertook to default to arrange for performance of the pool and the spa work to cure the default was prejudice. The court also held, and this is important, while America Reeb may have had the right under the subcontract to hire a replacement subcontractor, it did not have a right to do so without first allowing the surety an opportunity to exercise its rights under the performance bond. After all, the bond is a contract as well. Finally, and I think uh, Wayne commented on this, whining by the obligee is not enough. An obligee's declaration of default sufficient to invoke the, sh invoke the surety's obligations under performance bond must be made in clear, direct, and unequivocal language. 
Simply copying the surety with a letter like the June 28, 2021 letter in our case is not enough without calling upon the surety to take action. If the surety acts before the declaration of default, it faces possible tort liability for interference with contract and meddling in the affairs of its principal. Now, what's interesting in this case, too, is the subcontractor was not paid uh, a, a lot of the remaining contract funds uh, because uh, of the position by the general contractor. But what was interesting is they executed a change order after the initial delay for obtaining the um, uh, land disturbance permits, but at no time in violation of the subcontract did the general contractor issue a new schedule and insist on a change order prior to um, allowing them back on the job. So basically the subcontractor had no idea what the schedule was supposed to be and it was all uh, a big problem for the general contractor. And the surety saw, I mean, I'm sorry, the jury saw through a lot of what the obligee, the obligee was arguing. So that is the extent of it. I'd like to talk more about the, uh, a, the uh, consensus doc 706. Unfortunately, I don't think we have time and I don't have the bond in front of me. Again, I don't know of any case decision that's been made or issued relating to the consensus doc 706. In closing, before I open up the line for any questions, I am happy to provide citations upon request for any of these principles of law to send me an email. I want to thank everyone for joining us today and wishing everyone happy holidays, a very Merry Christmas, a blessed Hanukkah, blessed Kwanzaa, and a happy new year. The next episode of Surety Today will be on Monday, January 8, 2024 at 1230 Eastern Standard Time. And some, up some upcoming events in the surety world include the January 24 through 26, 2024 ABA FSLC Midwinter Meeting in New Orleans at the Roosevelt Hotel. Tom Moran and I will be presenting as will our partner, Cindy Rogers Ware. You can also go to our Surety Today blog website at wcslaw.com to see calendar of surety events. Thanks again to everyone. Now I'll unmute the line for any questions. Does anybody have any questions? <coughs> Wayne, that must mean you did an excellent job. That must be. It's all on me. I, I, I think I, I just want to make another point then is uh, there are, will be times, I'm sure, where the underlying contract terms that are incorporated by reference in the bond would appear to be in conflict with the obligee's responsibilities to the surety under the bond. And I know there are, you can make arguments that the surety signed the bond with the understanding that those conditions precedent had to be satisfied in order for the surety to have responsibilities under the bond. And the contractor could argue that, well, you, you surety, you signed a bond knowing what the underlying contract terms were, and we had absolute right to supplement the work of the contractor. We didn't have to provide notice to the surety in doing that. And, and you may get into those kinds of disputes, which frankly may be addressed differently in different jurisdictions. Uh, you're absolutely right. And in fact, that is an issue that uh, we've had some concern with, incorporation of the underlying contract. They constantly tried to refer to that in the course of the jury trial. Um, as you know, uh, and as I'm sure our listeners know, uh, there's some concern about incorporating all elements of the subcontract. 
uh, into a bond, such as the, the obligation to arbitrate. Uh, there's also attorney's fee provisions, which um, can arguably could be incorporated, but in this particular case, I don't think they can be. I don't want to get into all the issues um, more in detail or identify the parties because this case, they the, the obligee was very upset. I mean, extremely upset and immediately said it was going to appeal. So we look to go to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals and we'll find out what that all has to say. Um, so does anybody else have any other questions? Nope. All right. Well, I appreciate your time very much. And, uh, Wayne, I thank you for your participation as well. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, Bye. for uh, participating today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.